Go ahead and open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4. Last Sunday, Father's Day, we uh, had a great time looking at God's Word and understanding God is our Abba, right? Our Papa, our Daddy, just a wonderful term of endearment. And we left off last Sunday beginning this uh, look at covenant, because covenant is absolutely essential to understanding how God, even as our Abba, as our Father, relates to us, and then how we relate back to Him. And it really comes down to covenant. So, so that's where we're going. Uh, let's pray together. Here in Proverbs, let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you again for being Abba. Papa, thank you that we can approach you and your throne of grace uh, in very personal and intimate ways, very familial ways as your children. And yet in that family relationship, uh, Father, sometimes we forget that you are God and that you are Lord and that you do reign. And uh, Lord, I thank you for where we're heading in your word over the next few weeks, understanding covenant. And my prayer is that... Uh, through your Holy Spirit, you will speak truth to our, our hearts, open our minds, our understanding to understand what it means that you're a covenant God. Help us to answer the question on our bulletins this morning. Are we in covenant with you? And then, Lord, to make that real as we leave here and, and 24-7 to, to be in covenant, to walk in covenant with you. So, Father, we need you. We are absolutely dependent on your Holy Spirit teaching us. So. We love you. We thank you for your word and give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a, a verse that we've looked at several times over the past several weeks, Proverbs 4.23, right? It says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life, right? And, and we've been understanding that the heart is who we are and the core of our being and that every area of our life how we live, every relationship, every decision we make, how we handle our money, how we handle our time, our dreams, our aspirations, everything flows out of our heart, right? And, and we've sort of been going layer by layer, and God has been uh, sort of peeling back uh, these different layers. And, and so we kind of got to this point where we were asking, well, Lord, why is it that even in the church, even people that I know that would call themselves Christians, why is it sometimes that, that they go to church or they do sort of what we would call Christian things, but then when they leave the church and they live their life out in the community, in the workplace, at the ball field, wherever they are, something just doesn't seem to match. Right? Something, something the, the way they talk or the, their, their values, you know, their attitudes towards things... It doesn't seem very Christ-like. And, and we've been asking, why is that? And we saw some, some pretty uh, startling statistics and quotes about, you know, the behavior of evangelicals as a whole not being much different than non-Christians in society. And we ask ourselves, why is that? Why, why are churches today filled with millions of quote-unquote Christians like you sitting here listening to somebody around this country and around the world and yet... Monday through Saturday, 
statistics show that there kind of isn't a lot of difference. Why, why the disconnect? What's, what's, what's going on there, right? And, and we looked at some reasons. If you remember back in, in Acts chapter 8, there were issues of the heart. Remember Simon the sorcerer? Simon, you know, the apostles show up. He got really excited. He saw them doing signs. He even got baptized, right? And, 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 and then he says, hey, how much do you want? How much can I pay you for this power? Right? And he got rebuked by the apostles and said, hey, dude, your heart is just not right. And we saw through that story in Acts 8 that, that sometimes people come to church and maybe even come to, quote unquote, Christianity with this understanding, this motive of what's in it for me. What am I going to get out of this? How can Christianity better my life? Right. And, and so their heart isn't really right. It's not an issue of, of sin. It's not an issue of being delivered from the guilt and the power of sin. It's really, hey, Jesus, can you come into my life? Can I just do you're kind of like an add on another another good thing in my life? And, and really the motive and the heart is still self-centered and what? Selfish, right? And we, so we saw that through that story, we, we really have to check ourselves. Are we coming to Christianity primarily for what we get? What's in it for me? And as a pastor, you know, if, if we're not careful, we get caught into that because now if I believe that I'm supposed to meet your needs, then all of a sudden oh, we've got to have really good worship. Then we've got to have a really good children's program and a really good youth program and a really strong this and a really strong that. Why? Because if we don't, people will leave. Why? Because it didn't meet my needs. Right? And that's that what they call the church mentality where you shop around from church to church looking for which church meets your needs. And we, and we have to be very, very careful about that because, you know, there's, there's, that becomes a slippery slope. And then pastors, I've been on staff. I've been on staff at a secret sensitive church where we killed ourselves trying to make it the best everything. And, you know, there's some value in that. We all have excellence around here. We value excellence. But when it goes to an extreme, when you're more concerned about people not leaving, when you're more concerned about attracting them, then it just becomes man-centered. And it becomes God-centered. I mean, rather than God-centered. And then, here's the crazy thing, despite all the time and money and effort, people still leave. Because why? They just want the newest, betterest, baddest thing. You know, if you appeal to the flesh, you realize the flesh, <laughs> there's no end to the flesh. And so we saw that Christianity isn't about what I get out of it. You've got to check your heart. Okay, Simon the Sorcerer, great example. It's not about me and getting and, and all of that, okay? And then... We saw in John 3, right, the last before Father's Day, story with Nicodemus, right? Go ahead, let's turn to John 3. Very uh, familiar passage. John 3. Nicodemus, right, a member of the Jewish ruling council, came, comes to Jesus at night. He's seen, again, he's seen signs and wonders that Jesus has done, right? He says, hey, in John uh, 3, 3. Or 3, 2, he says, hey, no one can perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. And in reply, Jesus cuts right to the heart. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is what? Born again. Right? Born again. And so we said, maybe 
Okay? And, 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 and I want to be very careful because only God knows the heart. God tests the heart. Right? I told you, we're not here to be detectives about, you know, are you really a Christian? We can only present God's truth. We can only present the whole counsel of God and let, let God sort that out. Right? And, and, and we looked in John 3 and, and we said, okay, Nicodemus, it's not about anything you've done. It's not about religiosity. It's not about anything you, you've grown up with. Jesus says, cut right there. You need to be born again. And sometimes the disconnect between a, quote-unquote, someone who calls himself a Christian and how they live their life out there in a very secular, worldly way, quite honestly, they've never been born again. There are people standing on this side of the podium this morning in churches wearing the title of pastor who have not been born again. They can say all the right things. They can run a church well. Be very good administratively. They can even speak very well. But their heart, they're not born again. And we looked at what does it mean to be born again, right? We talked about regeneration, right? Regeneration. When you are born again, that second birth, you are literally what? A new what? New creation. With a new heart, new empowerment through the Holy Spirit, right? New desires. That's when you're born again. That's that born again. That's what everyone talks. Hey, are you a born againer? Right? I remember when I was when I was uh, sort of seeking and and I was brought to um, Bible studies and first getting used to this Christian, you know, the Christian lingo. And I hear, hey, are you born again? What are you talking about? <laughs> what does that mean, born again? And then I realized how absolutely incredible it is. See, you got to understand Christianity is about a supernatural rebirth and then a supernatural Holy Spirit-filled walk. Christianity is not about becoming a better moral person. You just got you to you put that in the coffin. Stop trying to be a better moral person. That's not Christianity. You must be born again. I love that. It's so simple. He didn't get into some big doctrinal... You must be born again. Because if you're born again, if you're regenerated, if you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, a lot of things just sort of follow. Right? Right? And I, and I asked you, how many of you remember a time in your life when you wanted nothing to do with God? How many of you at one point in your life would not be here? Okay. Put your hand. Come on. Just be on. How many would... Right? Now, let me ask you. How many of you want to be here? Who gave you that desire? God, not you. So if you're wondering, am I born again? Lord, are you working in my life? Just ask yourself, do you desire the things of God? Not perfectly. I'm not talking about living perfectly, but do you have a desire to honor God? Do you have a desire to be with his people? Do you have a desire to be in his word? Maybe not as much as you should, right? Do you have a desire to pray? If you have those desires, if you're walking with, in a pursuit of God, who is doing that in you? God, the Holy Spirit, right? Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It is work out your salvation for it is I who work in you to will and to do. He gives you the will. He gives you the desires and then he gives you the power. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Right? It's, it's kind of like when you learn to ride a bike. Anyone ever learned to ride a bike with someone running next to you, holding the seat? Right? And that confidence you had? Right? Okay, who here just said, someone said, just go downhill. <laughs> 
right? That's not what he does. He doesn't go put you on the big hill and say, here you go, be a Christian. And you're like, ah, you know, what does he do? He gives you the desire and the power. He's like running next to you, holding the seat, right? He's always there. He's always there. And then how many of you have parents taught your kids to ride the bike, but you weren't holding, but you said you were holding? Are you holding? Yeah, I'm holding. Right? Just the knowledge or the belief that you were there settled them down, didn't it? Right? Okay, so, so we've got to be born again. Okay? The third reason I put in your notes that, that we may, the third heart issue, that the reason that there may be this disconnect is that your relationship with God is not based on this word called covenant. Called covenant. I want to read you a letter that was sent to, a, to another pastor I came across. It says this. The gentleman writes this. I grew up in a Christian home and attended church. I walked the aisle as a child, accepted Christ. But no matter how hard I tried, I never had the joy in the Word or the joy in the Lord that others had. Then a cycle developed as I graduated from high school. I'd go to church, get involved, work hard, and build relationships with other Christians. Didn't last for me, and then I'd leave the church. The cycle brought me to Grace Church three years ago. I was confronted with the fact that I may not be a Christian at all because of this pattern. My response was flight, and I left the church. At that time... I wrote the pastor about my self-image problem, and he confronted me also with my lordship problem. After three years of desperately searching for happiness and identity on the world standards, God brought me back to the church at the point of desperation for my health and sanity. Through the teaching, love, and prayers of many here, I met Christ. I was here Sunday evening knowing I couldn't take communion. Before communion, the pastor spoke about Daniel and his committed life and the uncompromising life God required. I came to the realization that I had never really committed my life wholly and completely to the Lordship of Christ. I sat there in that pew and committed my life to him. Started out my new life by joining in my first communion as a Christian. Praise the Lord. I gave my life to him that he might add or delete whatever necessary that I might be conformed to His image and be used to glorify Him. I experienced an immediate hunger to know Him and know His Word, which I was searching for all these years. This guy grew up in the church. Probably did all the VBSs, all the little musicals, Sunday school, youth group. He knew it all. And he's struggling with his walk. And, and finally someone, a pastor, says, maybe you're not a Christian. Ooh. That's uncomfortable. That's a place that many people don't want to go. And I think you can go there lovingly, but at a certain point you need to ask yourself, maybe your relationship with with the Lord isn't what you think it is. Because the fruit doesn't seem to be being born. So if we go all the way back, all the way back, and we know that out of our heart flow all the issues of life, it's a heart issue, right? And what's the fundamental heart issue we need to answer? Are you a Christian? Are you born again? And so, through this process, he comes to the realization, you know, my heart's not right. I've got to get saved. 
And I don't know how old he is, but suddenly he, he rejoices that he's taking his first communion. Maybe he's 30s, maybe in his 40s. Having grown up in the church, he finally takes his first communion as what? A believer. As a believer. And so we're, we're asking ourselves, Lord, if, it's not, if, if our heart can be, have the wrong motives, maybe we're not born again. Maybe, it says in your notes, maybe our relationship with God isn't based on covenant, right? And if you see your notes there, from last Sunday, I, I put these continued on forward. Under covenant, it says, if Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship, what kind of relationship do you have with God? And I just kind of, you know, 20 years of ministry, I kind of just put some C words down here that I've just seen. Just observation. Is your relationship with God casual, convenient, cultural? Oh, you know, my dad's a pastor. Oh, we grew up always just going to church. I'm a, I'm a Christian just because. That's all I know. Right? Is it crisis Christianity? Is your, is, your, is your relationship with the Lord just based on when things are turned upside down in your world? And then as soon as the storm clouds pass, there's an empty seat, you know? You kinda, it's not so important to get to church anymore, right? Is it contractual Christianity, right? And th- this is what we talked about when we started this series on grace. Many of us said, okay, I guess it's a contract. If I, then God will, and we sort of approach this thing as a contract. Or we have a contract with the church, like I talked about earlier. Well, if that church has a this and a this and a this and a this, as long as the church upholds its end, I'll uphold my end. Right? And, and so if we're not careful, we see Christianity as a contract. And unfortunately, in our society, what happens? Contracts are what? Easily broken, right? In fact, now there's prenups. Right? And, and, and all this, the, the, the craziness, right? And, and so sometimes we have this, this view of Christianity, it's a contract. And it's really not. And then companion. You know, in our culture, how can I say this the right way? You remember that phrase, where, that, the verse where Jesus says, I call you friends? Right? Remember that phrase, Jesus, I, call, I now call you friends? We're going to look at that in the context of covenant. But. What I've seen in sort of pastoral and sort of church as a whole is we tend to emphasize Jesus as our friend. Jesus is your friend. He's your buddy. Yeah, he's your BFF, right? Right? Just, just he's, you know, and there's kind of truth to that. There's some, you can relate to him that way. But here's the thing that happens. If your Christianity is all about companionship and Jesus is your BFF, what happens when your BFF asks you or commands you to do something you don't want to do? What happens when your BFF says, no, I'm Lord? See, if we, if we sort of relegate our, our Christianity to companion Christianity, you know what we kind of do? Let's be honest. We give ourselves permission to be disobedient because we don't prefer it. It's not convenient. We don't like that. You know? And that, that's where you get down this slippery slope because then you start to change who God is into what? The image of our liking. And as soon as you change and start messing with the character of God, you open yourselves all up to false teaching. There is no hell. What is, what is the root of that? Someone changed the nature of God because they didn't think that God would be like that. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you start to change the character of God, 
because you don't have the right view of Christianity and God, then you just open yourself up to rewriting this in the way that you like it, that fits your image of God. You, get, you see how we flip it? Suddenly we're telling God who he is and what he does and doesn't do. And unfortunately, that's just come into the church big time. The church is filled with people behind the pulpits telling God who he is and what he can and can't do and what he should and shouldn't do. And therefore, what we have to and, and don't have to obey. And in the end, it just becomes man-centered. In the end, the authority of Scripture is tossed out the window. It's no longer God's word. It's just man telling God what he thinks about. Right? You get what I'm saying? Right? So it's way beyond companion. In fact, at the core, it's covenant. Covenant. Now, covenant is a word that, that, you know, I shared last Sunday. We have to be very careful and, and you have to use words as believers. Words are very powerful. How many of you are justified? What does that mean? Not guilty, fully righteous. How many of you have been regenerated? Right? Use the words. Because sometimes you say the words and you smile. How many of you are a saint? See, I say that and I still see smiles. You're like, I say, how many of you are saying you put your hand up? It's like automatic. I say, how many of you are saying you go? It's, an auto, it's weird. I say, I say a word and there's a response. Saint. Right? You have to use these words. That's why God put them in there. That's why they're there. So this word covenant, we have to understand covenant. Okay, because the truth is, if you've been born again, if you're a child of God, here's the deal. You're in covenant. Now, let's take an honest survey. How many of you did not know you were in covenant? Okay, right? That's okay. I mean, I taught on this like two years ago now, so some of you who were here before understand it, right? You're in covenant with God. You're like, what is that? I don't even know what that means. My prayer for us as you understand covenant you're going to go, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. How many of you believe with all your heart if you were to die today, you would go to heaven? What's the basis of that? God's promise or covenant. See, our God is a covenant God, which means He is faithful to keep all His promises. You can bank on every promise from God as your father because you're in covenant with him. Covenant. Okay, and we're going to understand this more as we go. And I'm going to tell you, we're going to take little baby steps. We're going to take little baby steps to understand covenant. There's a quote there I love. It says, the notion of a covenant is unfamiliar today. But the concept of covenant is utterly basic to our understanding of Scripture. In Old Testament times, this complex concept was the foundation of social order and social relations. And it was particularly the foundation for an understanding of humanity's relationship with God. So you flip over your notes, right? Simplest definition I could sort of, you know, hours and hours of study. And these definitions will kind of morph as we go. But just to kick us off, what is covenant? A solemn binding agreement or bond or union between two parties. Covenant. Covenant. Last week I shared with you, I had post-it notes, right? Two sets, and I, I share this when I, when I marry people, right? One set of post-it notes. Post-it notes are what? Designed to come apart, right? That's how we kind of look at even marriage now. It's a contract designed to sort of easily come apart. Another set of post-it notes, what did I do? I super glued them together. 
Not designed to come apart at all. That's covenant. That's covenant. Now, the reason we're going to kind of go slow over the next few weeks is this. We tend to view in, in our culture, marriage was initially the, the sort of the highest picture, the best illustration of covenant years ago. It was seen as permanent, right? Marriage was a, was a covenant till death do us part. Remember all that? Nowadays, because marriage is more like post-it note contracts, even in the church, it's difficult for me to use the marriage illustration because covenant doesn't ring anymore so much in our generation, right? So we're going to go really slow because there's a lot of cultural bleeding in of these words that you're going to have to sort of sort through. So covenant, okay, is a solemn binding agreement. When I marry people, it says what? The vows, till death do us part. Till death do us part, okay? So right off the bat, when I asked you if you're in covenant with God, did you realize that you are in a solemn binding agreement? bond, union with God. Solemn, binding agreement, bond, or union. You're in covenant. It's solid. Now, take this the right way. Here's maybe a better word picture, but take it the right way because I don't want to be disrespectful. Think of gangs. Right? Think of those who join gangs, if you're familiar with that. Someone wants to become part of a gang, right? What do they tell them? They say, hey, dude, if you really want to be a part of this, you need to understand it's for life. You're in. If you're in, you're in. And many gangs will say the only way you go out is you're dead. Do you guys understand that? I use that because there's a covenant. There's a covenant. You get this with soldiers. You get this with police officers. There's a bond. You, you, you think, of that. think of it. There's a bond that happens. We are in this together. There's a union till death, right? How many of us have viewed our relationship with Jesus that way? You're in. There's a bond Till death do us part. We are in. All in. All in. Not when it's convenient. Not when there's a crisis. Not you're my BFF. No, I'm in. I'm in. 100% all in. See that? Why are we going slow? Because that right there is a challenge. Now, where did that get lost? And, 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 and understand this. I'm not being disrespectful to anyone. But what we've done in the church is we say, God is a God of grace, which he is. All you need to do is receive the gift, which you do, right? And then we sort of leave out the whole part of being covenant, being in covenant. So people believe on Jesus. People know they're a child of God. But because they don't understand covenant, all the verses about obedience and all the verses about lordship don't make sense. Well, I, I believe Jesus. Okay, so let me ask you this question. How many of you understand the gospel to mean your sins are forgiven. Okay. How many of you understand and came to Jesus to be delivered from sin? Hmm. See, see, in the presentation of the gospel, sometimes we'll say this, Scott, Jesus died for you. Right? 
Do you believe that? Scott, if you believe that Jesus died for you and confess Him as Savior and Lord, your sins are forgiven. Is that what you want? Hypothetically, yes, right? Right. So here's the thing. If I'm not careful and I don't present the whole story of covenant, right? Scott believes he comes to Jesus and the only thing he did was he just got something. His sin's forgiven. He doesn't have any sense that he wants to be delivered from the power of sin. He's not convicted of, 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 of desiring to live for God daily. He's just been forgiven. And then the pastors come along and say, well, Daryl, you know, how are you living for the Lord? And, and, you know, Jesus says, many will say, Lord, Lord, you know, I never knew you. And you're like, where are these verses coming from? Obedience? And I thought I'm just supposed to believe in Jesus and have my sins forgiven. You see the difference? Just the gospel, when and Jesus, the whole, the whole part of the gospel was not only are your sins forgiven, but you are delivered from sin. Amen? You're delivered. That's the whole regeneration part. What does Romans say? You're no longer a slave to sin. You're in covenant now. That's the importance of understanding covenant, right? Because sometimes, again, we can miss misportray the, the gospel and, and Scott leaves and he's a believer but he's just like okay my sins are forgiven Woo-hoo. and there's joy and there's peace but he didn't even have any conviction or any desire to be delivered from sin from the power of sin right and, and there's kind of difference. that's why covenant is so important to understand right and the first part of covenant let's turn to Genesis the very first time covenant is used in the Bible is in Genesis Genesis 6. Genesis 6.18. God is speaking to Noah and his family. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. All right? So he's sort of foreshadowing this covenant that's coming, right? Turn to uh, Genesis 9. So there's the flood, right? Flood comes. Flood dissipates. Genesis 9, starting in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth, right? So covenant, 
in Genesis 6 and Genesis 9. This is the first time the word covenant appears in the Bible. In your notes there, it says there's the Hebrew word, barith, which is to bind, derived from a, word, a root word which means to cut. Sometimes you hear a phrase, and next Sunday we're going to look at this cutting covenant, right? The whole blood, walking between the animals. If you read through the Old Testament, you've seen that happen, right? We're going to explore that more next week. But look at the elements of the covenant. You send your notes there. It's unilateral, initiated and dictated by God according to his will, right? So he says, hey, Noah, here's what I'm going to do. Basically, says, I'm God. Here's what's going to happen. He just tells them the way it is. No negotiating, no bargaining. He just says, I'm God. Here's the deal, right? So he tells it. It's universal, applies to everyone. It's unconditional, in this covenant with Noah, no one is boys, families, they don't have to do anything. God just says, here's the deal. I'm never going to flood the earth again. And I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky, and every time I see it, I'm going to be reminded. Okay? So it's unconditional. There's a promise. We just said it, right? There's never going to be a flood that's going to wipe the earth out. And the sign of the covenant is the rainbow. Okay? Very first covenant, first usage of the word in the Bible. Now, look in your notes. It says the Greek word in the New Testament. So they bring, they bring the word covenant into the New Testament, right? And in fact, your Bible has two sections. The old what? Testament and the new what? That's the same word. It's covenant. Your Bible is divided into two covenants. The old covenant and the new covenant. Okay, we're going to look at that later, a little later. But look, when, when they translate it into the New Testament, the word covenant is diatheki. Very important. Something arranged according to one's wishes. A covenant between a greater and a lesser. Let me explain that to you. A king comes in, conquers a land. Right? Now he's, he's the master of the whole land. He says, hey, all you that I've conquered, here's the deal. And he tells them what the deal is. No negotiations. If you agree to this deal, I'll take care of you, I'll provide, Right? The only thing that the conquered people can do is what? Agree or disagree? Accept it or not? No negotiations. None. Greater to the lesser. Okay? Diatheki. There's another word for covenant that the New Testament writers chose not to use. And it's soon thinking. Something that is arranged jointly. A covenant between equals. Think about a business deal. We negotiate. Bill's a businessman. He negotiates. Think about a marriage. You might have some discussions, right? Because we're equals in this. So you negotiate a covenant, but it's done on peer-to-peer level. Let's negotiate this. Let's bargain. Diatheki says, greater, lesser. Here's the deal. Take it or leave it. God's covenant with us is diatheki. In years of ministry and people struggling with obedience and, and lordship issues and taking up the cross and follow me, all these verses that seem really tough, you know why they're tough? Because we tend to view God and our covenant relationship with God as soon thiki. Okay, God, so tell me what's in your word. I like that. I like that. No, I don't like that so much, God. Can we, can we modify that? Is that really what you meant, God? We tend to, we tend to approach God as soon thinking. We tend to negotiate with God. 
We tend to have this relationship with God as peers. Let's bargain. Let's bargain. And he says, no, Bill. It's diatheki. And this is the way it is. This is the way it is. And I think that that's kind of what God wants to ask us today. In your relationship with God, is he your peer and you're trying to negotiate all the time? Or is it diatheki? When it's, yes, Lord, I accept. See, then those verses mean so much, right? Let's look at a few really quick because you're going to understand these verses in context now. You're going to really understand what they mean. Let's look at Luke 14. Luke 14:26 All right, it says this, Luke 14 starting verse 14:25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them he said, "If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple." Now, he's not saying literally hate. He's just saying, love me so much that in comparison, it looks like you hate people. So, so here's the thing. We read that verse and Bill's like, oh, I don't know if I really like that because I really have good friends. And I, Jesus, do you really want me to love you so much that it looks like hating others? And we start to bargain. Take up my cross? What? And he's like, that's the deal. That's the deal. Can't be my disciple unless you take up my cross your cross. You see the difference? And right now it's tough. Because in our culture and in our churches, this idea of diatheki covenant and just God telling you the way it is and you just saying, yes, Lord, and walking in obedience, that's not really uncomfortable. Because it's really, in our churches, it's turned in. It's all about you and what Jesus can do for you and build you up, build you up, build you up, build you up, build you up. And all of a sudden, uh, it's diatheki. Right? Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You know, the Bible says when two people are married, they what? Become one flesh, right? Here's the deal. Individual, independent living ceases to exist when you're in covenant. Right? If you're going to be married, you've got to give up independent individual life. Right? You're now one. Right? In diatheki, you give up independent individual living to be in covenant with God. See, a lot of us, a lot of us struggle in our obedience because we still want that independent life. Can you imagine? Hey, Nate, let's get married, but I've got to do my own thing on Friday night. I want to live like I did as a single bachelor at UCLA. Are we good? (laughs) It wouldn't fly, right? It wouldn't fly at the human level because you want to marry me, dude. What? You're all in. There is no more your life independent. We're one, right? 
That's the same thing with God. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Why? Because I'm in diatheke covenant. On the front end, I am bound to him as one. I have no more life of my own. I have no more life of my own. And here's the radical thing in the new covenant. Here's a very, we'll close with this. John 3.16. Turn to John 3.16. Awesome verse that now you'll understand in the context of diatheke covenant. John 3.16. Let's all read it together because we all know this. Here, You can recite it by heart. Ready? Begin. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's covenant language. That's God establishing a covenant. Just like he did with Noah. The major difference is Noah, the, the covenant with Noah was unconditional. This one has a condition. What's the condition? Belief. Belief. But it's still a covenant. And here's the deal. I'm establishing a new covenant. And it's simple as this. I tell you, believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. Take it or leave it. That's diatheke. He's not asking your opinion. It's not up for negotiation. It's not up for bargaining. He just told you, I'm God. Here's the new covenant. It's in my son, Jesus. Believe in him. And I promise you, you have eternal life. Amen. So the challenge for us this morning. And this has been challenging for me. Because I was raised real super independent and, and no one tells me what to do. And I'm known boss. And, and what do you mean there's no negotiation? And anyone ever... Try to lay something on you, and you're just like, but, but, but. Anyone? How many, right? Someone's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And they're, they're laying this whole, this whole deal on you, and you have no input. How many of you hate that? You're just being told how it's going to work. Anyone D- dislike being told how it's going to work? In covenant, because God loves us, and he's a God of grace. Remember grace? He didn't leave us lost. He says, in my grace, because I love you so much, I'm creating a covenant that I will keep. And I'm going to tell you how it works. Here's the deal. And all we have to do is accept it or reject it. That's it. That's our deal. And when you accept it, you are in covenant. Covenant. Bound. Eternally bound. Isn't that awesome? You're, you're in. And we're going to look at this more and more and more, right? Jesus says, and we're going to go into, into communion. Let's turn to Luke 22, and then we're going to sing a song for communion. We'll close with this. Luke 22, starting in verse Luke twenty two fourteen. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new what? Covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The new covenant, and we're going to understand new covenant as we move forward, is really Jesus. He's the covenant. He's the mediator of the new covenant. And here's the thing. Remember, what was the sign that God gave Noah? Rainbow. What is the sign that God gives us for the new covenant? Okay, practically. We do it every week. Communion. See, when we hold those cups, it's those verses. It's a sign that we're in covenant. Isn't that awesome? Right? Think about Noah. It never really rained like it did before, right? So think about the next time probably storm clouds came. What was going through Noah's mind? Here comes the flood. He would have freaked out, right? But then he puts, God says, oh no, wait, there's a rainbow. Wait, 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 there's a rainbow. There's a rainbow. Okay, God said, ah, no flood. You get it? In your life. Things happen, storms come. Why is it important to take communion? Hold the sign of the new covenant to remind you that you're in covenant. Just like the rainbow reminded Noah and all those who would have been freaked out about future rainstorms that they were in covenant. When you take communion regularly, it reminds you what? That you are in covenant. It's all good. You're in covenant forever. Amen? Lord, thank you. We are in covenant. A solemn, binding, bond, union agreement with you. And yet, Father, today I know we're challenged with the, the idea that it's diatheki. And something in our sin nature, something in our humanness just rears up against being told how it's going to work. And so we need you, Holy Spirit. To enable us to yield to the Word of God. And to simply accept the condition that God has set forth. Belief on Jesus. John 3.16 Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Covenant. Covenant. And so, Father, we examine our hearts before we take communion. And if we have not been submitted, if, if diatheki if has not been our heart, we ask your forgiveness. If we have been negotiating, bargaining with you about different things in our life, we ask your forgiveness. And as we take communion, we are reminded, Jesus, that the new covenant is really because you shed your blood. And that believing in you, we enter into covenant and we know we have eternal life. We know we can have abundant life. 